Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to help support Songcraft while accessing bonus content and rewards, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You can also keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com, where you can check out our episode archive and sign up for our email list. Way back on the radio dial Fire got lit inside a bright-eyed child You're listening to Even If It Breaks Your Heart, a number one country hit for Eli Young Band as heard in its original version, written and recorded by independently-minded, roots-oriented singer-songwriter Will Hogue. The Nashville-based tunesmith will join us in a few moments to chat about his collaborations with writers such as Hilary Lindsay, Chris Stapleton, Hayes Carl, and Brendan Benson, as well as his catalog of more than a dozen critically acclaimed albums. Part one. Well, Scott, um, I'm just going to just skip the pleasantries today and go right to the, the topic of conversation. Right, to, right to, to business. Yes, I don't want to even say how was your weekend or any of that stuff. We've got a Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums list to talk about, uh-huh. and it's not the first time they've done this list. Um, this is actually a list that's been updated a few times in the past few years, but there have been sweeping changes to the 500 greatest album list. The winds of change have come to Rolling Stone's <laughs> list, indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, and I I just want to talk about it because, uh, first of all, this is the kind of thing we talk about. Right. And I, I got to tell you, there are certain things I think that they've done where I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That should have been done the first time. But then some of this stuff, I'm just scratching my bald head <laughs> and trying to figure out what's going on here. So... Uh, Rolling Stone, I think, put this list out first in 2003-ish, uh, and there was a revision in 2012 that was a little different. Uh, the current one, the 2021, is entirely different. Yeah. So um, it's, I think there's 154 new entries on this list, and since the total number, 500 greatest albums, since that didn't change, uh, for 154 to come on, that meant 154 had to go off, and, and it wasn't like everything stayed in the same position. So uh, it is a total uh, revisiting, I guess, of the 500 greatest albums. I, I will say... You know, there's not a ton of jazz and classical stuff on here. It's still kind of, you know, rock and, and pop album heavy. Right. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's very different. So by all means, you're the one who needs to talk about this. You need to talk it out. And here I am <laughs> yakking about the, the details of why well, they did it. But, you know, lay it on me, man. I mean, it, it's it's been very 60s heavy, 1960s heavy, 60s and 70s, which makes sense because the album kind of became a thing in the 60s. So you're going to find, you know, the the Beatles and the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones kind of like really, you know, being the first to, to plow ahead in terms of what the album concept could be as, as a work of art. Yeah. Um, so that, that makes sense. And that's actually still kind of the case when you look at the two. And I understand that since 2003, there have been some great records that have come out. It's been nearly 20 years. Of course, you're going to need to include some masterpieces in there. And I understand that. Um what I can't figure out is why albums that came out at the same time have moved so wildly. 
Okay, so hmm. the new number one is Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. Yeah. Uh, that has moved up from where it was in the number six spot. Um, I actually can't argue with that. I think What's Going On is an, is an incredible album. I think its cultural resonance right now has probably made it something that, that rose to the top spot, you know, in, in the critics' minds, and I understand that. It actually kind of indicates, hey, that was maybe even more of a timeless album than anybody thought, right? Right. What I don't understand is how Sgt. Pepper went from number one to number 24. <laughs> right, that, right. That doesn't make any sense. Sgt. Pepper was number one in the 2003 original version and in the 2012 version. So it, it stayed uh, number one for, for a good while. Yeah, and it was, it was ahead of Rubber Soul. It was ahead of Abbey Road. It was ahead of Revolver. Uh, Revolver was the one that was actually closest to the top spot. It was in number three. And now... It's behind uh, Abbey Road and Revolver. Abbey Road has leapfrogged Revolver. Revolver's not even in the top 10. Before, you had the Beatles in the top 10 three times. Right. Four. Four. <laughs> yeah. Four Sergeant times. Pepper was You're number right. one. Uh, Revolver was number three. Rubber Soul. Uh, Rubber Soul was number five. And uh, uh, number 10 was the White Album. The White Album, yeah. So right. Abbey Road, yeah, wasn't even in the top 10 before. And I don't even see the White Album in the top 25 now. Or Rubber yeah. Soul. Yeah, uh, no. Um, and, you know, I'm going to say this. I don't think, not only do I not think that Sgt. Pepper is the greatest album of all time, I don't even think Sgt. Pepper is the greatest Beatles album. Um, right. So I don't have a huge issue with Sgt. Pepper not being in, in number one. It's not my favorite Beatles album. Um I mean, it's great. It was, for what it was, technologically, it was groundbreaking. It was huge. It was massively influential. So it's certainly, look, Sgt. Pepper should be in the top 10. I mean, yeah. that's crazy that it's not. Um, I don't know if it should necessarily be number one, but this redoing of the list is is a huge shakeup of kind of the canon of of what has been considered the the, the staples of, of rock and roll. You know, the I think the thing that, that is different about this list is when they did the 2012 edition, they were sort of re-looking at the original list. Apparently, this edition was like a complete do-over. So they just said, hey, we're pretending as if there never was a list before. We're going out to, to the critics and we're asking them, and artists too, I think, like Adam Clayton and The Edge were part of it, Taylor Swift, Beyonce were both part of it, and then a ton of critics. Um, and so they, they were just sort of reinventing it as if the other list hadn't come before. Right. You know, and, and I think in retrospect, you look at, at the previous lists, and if you're going to call it a comprehensive list of the greatest albums of all time, it was a little white, you know, yeah. b- beforehand. I mean, it was it was quite white. I'm and male. At, white and male. <laughs> it was very white and very male. <laughs> and and I, I understand, uh, I think the the moves that were made to kind of diversify this album portfolio and, and you know, taking a look at the broader picture, I think they were good moves. I mean, Lauryn Hill, that album sh- should have been recognized, you know, uh, beforehand. Now it's in the top 10, Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, to see what's going on in the top spot. Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, number four. I mean, th- these are great moves to recognize Public Enemy and Aretha and things like that. Um, yeah. I encourage everybody to look at the list to see what I'm talking about. Um, well, and apparently, you know, compared to the to the previous list, it was like three or, or four times more uh, rap and, and hip hop on this list than there was previously, which, you know, whether you're a hip hop fan or not, speaks to the cultural 
relevance of hip hop, yeah. that what was probably considered a fad in the eighties has proven to kind of become the dominant popular uh, music medium today. So that is much more reflected in this than, than what it was previously. You know, nobody's a bigger fan of Rolling Stone than Rolling Stone. <laughs> right. right. Fair. I mean, fair. They're they're quite, you know, aware of their own significance and, and they they like that. So um I'm sure they're very happy with themselves and, and pleased with the changes they've made and everything. But to me, rap was relevant in two thousand twelve too. Yeah, sure. You know what I'm saying? That like that some of these things were misses hmm. that they miss in two thousand twelve. Yeah. When a list swings this wildly, I'm tempted to ask, which one is the dumb one? <laughs> you know, is it a dumb move to drop Sgt. Pepper to number 24? Right. Or was it dumb to have it at number one in the first place? Is it Was it dumb to put Purple Rain at number eight? Or was it dumb to have left it out in the first place? <laughs> which list do you think is generally the better list? There are things about the new list that I like. Um, now, forgetting musical taste, which is hard to do, right? I mean, it's right. hard to set aside, like, what are my personal favorites versus, you know, what are the greatest albums? Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly is at number 19. That record came out in, in 2015, um, so it's five years old. Um, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper is at 24. I don't know if you can measure those two records um in terms of influence right. and look at one that is decades old and one that's five years old and really be able to measure like, well, okay, which one has the most lasting cultural relevance and significance? Right. Um, so I'm, I'm like a little wary of seeing albums that have only been out five, 10 years. I'm kind of more like you need 20 years before you can even evaluate whether something right. is, is lasting and significant. So seeing like Prince, for example, make his way up the list, um, you know, Prince was phenomenal. And I think that, uh, but with time and distance that, that legend only, only grows. Um, so I think that the, the 2020 list, um, is, is good in that they intentionally valued some things that have kind of fallen outside the canon that have just been unquestioned of like, no, these are the rock and roll pillars and, and there's no room for anybody else. So I think, you know, for instance, Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You is now at number 13 on the list. It was not in the top 25 previously. That is a great classic album. I'm yeah. glad to see that there. Yeah. Um, now, whether or not it's because Aretha Franklin is female or a person of color, I don't know. I don't know if that's why it wasn't there before, but it's it's worthy to recognize Um you know, some of these contributions to music that have kind of fallen outside the canon for one reason or another. Um, so I, I appreciate what they're trying to do. And I think it's, it's a worthy exercise to always be looking at music and say, well, what is, what has culture, what has significance? And, you know, even though it sounds like I'm contradicting myself, um, while I do think you need time to, to really evaluate something's relevance and, and, and whether or not it's going to last, I also think you should always be open to considering newer music right. as it kind of comes in. Like, should this kind of be part of the canon? Is this something that's going to stand the test of time? Let's keep an eye on this. So right. um, I applaud that. I my, my biggest beef is that there is not a single Rolling Stones album in the top 10. And in my mind... Really, this is the greatest albums of the rock, pop, hip-hop era. And the Rolling Stones are the definition of rock and roll. So right. how can you have 
not have a Rolling Stones album in the top 10. Exile on Main Street was uh, number six or seven, I think, previously. Um, now it's number 14. I just feel like I love that album and I wish that was in the top. But that's just coming back to personal preference again. Well, yeah, I I, I really do. I, I agree with everything you said. I, I think um, the diversity of this list, uh, I, I really like it, not only just because I think it's, you know, some, you know, societal move or whatever. I actually think it's really reflective of the way the world has consumed music and the way yeah. music has impacted the world. And, and you don't you don't have some of these rock records without having these R&B and blues records. You know, they're they re- they affect one another. And th- here's my biggest issue. Um, there are certain bands like the Beatles that probably should be in the top 10 more than once. And I feel like there was a great effort to not have that happen. Yeah. There was a great effort to sort of like separate, you know, okay, well, we got one from the Beatles. Let's, you know, let's be sure we give a spot to someone else. It's possible for the Beatles to just be that important that they actually did make two of the top 10 albums of all time. Right. You know, was four times excessive? Probably. Yeah. But more than once, I mean, sure, man. And the Beach Boys Pet Sounds is at number two. It was at number two previously, and it, it's still at number two. And, you know, to me, Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper are almost in dialogue with each other. Like mm. those, you know, the Beach Boys and the Beatles were very competitive at that time. So it's, it is kind of odd to see that particular album stay right where it was and see Sgt. Pepper fall you know, so much further. Um, that, that seems kind of odd. And you know, the poor beach boys, they're like, Hey, that was a revision up oh, still at number two. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't like, you know, uh, I mean the, the, the whole thing shifted and they just stayed right at number two. I think that was the only one in the top 25 that stayed exactly where it was. Uh, one of the things I think is interesting about this is that, um, Elvis Presley's, uh, like I needed to say his last name, right? Um, <laughs> Elvis's, uh, Sun Sessions album was at number 11 on the previous list and it is not in the top 25 on this list. And what's fascinating to me about that is, I mean, Elvis is practically synonymous with rock and roll. Now you can argue that like Elvis wasn't really an albums artist at least in terms of the impact that right. that he made and even the sun sessions isn't technically an album it's, it's a, a compilation, compilation yeah. of, of singles but it's still interesting to note that elvis presley who was sort of the king of rock and roll embodied the idea um of early rock and roll um is not in the top 25 and it is interesting to think okay well if elvis falls out of the top 25 you know between 2012 and 2020 how do we view elvis 50 years from now 100 years from now 250 years from now and who becomes more or less important because we're always viewing it from the lens of today i i do think though that elvis will probably that uh, pains me to say it but you know his his stature will probably diminish and i think it's because there's such a compelling visual to the last decade of elvis's life right which is not one that gets, you know, very celebrated in, yeah. in the historical view. Right. Um, I, you know, I enjoy it for different reasons. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, kind of jumpsuit Elvis is a little too much in the forefront of public perception um, when firebrand, you know, crazy truck driver Elvis <laughs> it was really the, the catalyst, right. you know, in my mind. Yeah. Um, not he wasn't he wasn't the original element, but he was a catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he brought it to a wider audience. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, I think if you step back and you look at this entire list, uh, the Beatles are still the only artist on here with nine albums on the on the total 500 list. Bob Dylan's got eight. Neil Young's got seven. Uh, the Rolling Stones have six, as does Kanye West, which is probably a new new development. Yeah. Led Zeppelin, Bruce Springsteen, David Bowie, they've all got five. You're still looking at kind of the canon, <laughs> you know, yeah. of the the way that it's that it's always kind of been um, with some shakeups and revisions. And ultimately, the only reason I'm convinced that anybody makes these lists is to create outrage so that people can go, how did they leave this right. off? How did they not put that? You know, the they, you know, we live in a world that, uh, you know, is looking for, uh, for online debate and clicks, right? So, like, the more controversy that can be stirred up by something like this, the, the better. I don't think uh, I don't think these lists exist for any other reason but to create arguments. Perfect. I'm angry. <laughs> Mission accomplished. No, I'm actually not angry. I, I think it's a it's a pretty cool list. I, I would just like, you know, I, I feel. <laughs> I feel like maybe they should apologize for the old ones. If you're going to come up with a list that's this different, be like, hey, there's a little bit of a mea culpa. Like, we didn't get it right last time. <laughs> Rather than just like, here's a new one. Right. We are still amazing, and our list is still amazing. It's just completely different. <laughs> you know what hasn't changed, though, over time, Scott? What's that? Is the quality of the work that comes out of Pearl Snap Studios. Mm, indeed. Right? I mean, year in, year out, month in, month out, no reshuffling, you know. You know you're getting a number one every time, um, and and that's uh, that's one of the reasons that we're always proud to work with those guys. Proud to represent them. I even have a Pearl Snap T-shirt. Did you know that? Uh, I have seen you wear it proudly. Yes. Yeah, I do wear it proudly. I stick out my chest a little further Indeed. every time I've got the Pearl Snap shirt on. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably because it's this is maybe the first songcraft episode you've ever listened to because we've talked about them a bunch but if you're a songwriter or you're a musician and, and you're creating content and you don't have a way to to create the recording that you feel like your song deserves you can send that thing over to pearl snap and i'm not talking about putting it in the mail i'm not talking about taking a reel to reel you know <laughs> quantity roll of tape and sending it as you were planning to yeah uh, but you could just fire over an mp3 to those guys here's my voice memo here's my song and, you know, do a little dialogue with Justin, a little back and forth. He'll send it back, fully recorded, full band vibes, vocals, everything. And you've got something that's ready to go, ready to pitch, ready to represent your creativity and your work. Yeah, so quit farting around with Pro Tools. You're never going to figure it out. <laughs> Just write your song and let the pros do the work. Let Justin give you a pitch-worthy demo that you can be proud of. It's going to sound great. Yep. Get rid of the crap. Get into the snap. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I New like slogan. it. PearlSnapStudios.com. Check them out. Part two. As a songwriter, Will Hogue is perhaps best known for Even If It Breaks Your Heart, a number one country hit for Eli Young Band that earned a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song, as well as both CMA and ACM nominations for Song of the Year. Originally recorded on Hogue's own album, The Wreckage, it is one of many acclaimed compositions from the pen of the outspoken singer-songwriter who celebrates both his Southern heritage and progressive social views. In addition to performing You Make Me Happy, the theme song to the CBS sitcom Still Standing, Hogue has released more than a dozen albums. Though his music ranges from rock to folk to Americana, his single Strong earned mainstream country radio airplay and was featured in a national Chevy truck commercial. He has collaborated with writers such as Brett Beavers, Tommy Lee James, Hillary Lindsay, Gordy Sampson, Chris Stapleton, Hayes Carl, Brendan Benson, and Wade Bowen. 
Other artists who've recorded his songs include the group Trigger Hippie and Lady A, formerly known as Lady Antebellum. Will, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks so much for having me. I want to I want to start with with kind of a heavy question. Um, in in 2015, you put out a, a non-album single called "Still a Southern Man" that kind of articulated the evolution of your thoughts on the Confederate flag. And you know, here we are five years later. Um, that flag is still a a lightning rod of of controversy. Um, as an artist and a, a songwriter who is unabashedly Southern, but, you know, also outspoken about your progressive social views, what do you view as kind of your artistic place in this moment in terms of uh, representing the the positive things about Southern culture while also kind of wrestling with the ghosts of the South's dark past? Well, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> so you're asking me just how do I cure racism in a song? Okay, that's not hard to do. <laughs> right. No uh, problem. It's very simple. <laughs> this would be easy. No, I mean, you know, growing up here in the South, you know, you just, um, you get a different perspective on all of that. And it wasn't until I got a little older and, and grew, you know, I spent most of my life within about a, 60 mile radius of where I was born and getting out and traveling and playing in rock band, you start to learn things that are a little different. Um, and I just, I was always drawn to Southern culture. I still think there's just so much to be proud of. I still, I mean, the greatest American music forms are all Southern. I think the greatest food is Southern, the best literature, the best art, um, yeah. my favorite landscape. I mean, just the South is something there's lots to be proud of about. Um, then there's other parts that we should really uh, not honor. Um, and I was always just intrigued by Southerners who were outspoken about those kinds of things across the board. I mean, from, you know, the guys in uh, Leonard Skinner. Uh, all the way to Muhammad Ali. Um, I, I just always was attracted to that, people that were willing to challenge their, maybe their own upbringing um, and their own neighbors, their own family members on those kinds of things. And I, and I think about, you know, that song in particular was really written to sort of age you know, 15 to 18 year old me um you know if, if 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 i were able to go back and sort of tell myself those things maybe it would have felt differently i don't think at that age anybody had sat me down and sort of given me the larger information about what those artifacts really stand for hmm. um outside of my own world you know i looked at it like it was the, it was the school mascot and it was this cool thing, and it meant that we were rebels, and we were going to take a stand against things that we didn't like. And you know, it didn't dawn on me until years later that that's just not what that meant to to everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we can't, uh, you know, 
basically cure racism as a song. Maybe we can, you know, cure it on a podcast. We've got, you know, a whole hour here, so. <laughs> well, we should be able to get into can... economic inequality. And, uh, <laughs> it's going to be easy. All right. <laughs> right. We'll cure all the problems. I mean, that time, look, you, you answered that one so well. I think we should just go down the whole path. But uh, actually, we'll, we'll focus, you know, uh, a, a bit more on you personally and your career. I want to talk about, you know, you grew up in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, which is just outside of Nashville. And that kind of seems fitting because even though you're a Nashville-based artist, I would say that your music is kind of just outside of Nashville uh, in terms of the mainstream country industry. Um, I'd like to hear a bit about the musical influences that you absorbed as a kid growing up in that environment. Yeah, so I was born in Nashville. My folks both grew up here. Um, you know, in Nashville, my dad and uncles were in rock bands you know, that saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and everybody went and bought guitars and started bands and played in garages and, um, and did that whole thing. And, and they both pursued it. Uh, it was a lot like that movie, That Thing You Do. I mean, really and truly, it was kind of exactly that thing. They all had sort of regional records that they were making, but they operated very much outside of um, you know, the, the Nashville country kind of thing. Uh, so I grew up with sort of a generational removed bunch of influences, you know, where all of my friends were listening to Poison or Motley Crue. I was listening to uh, The Temptations or James Brown or Bob Dylan or The Rolling Stones. Um, and that was really influential on me. And, and, you know, we spent a lot of time, because my dad had been in the business at some level, and Nashville was really a small town at that point. You know, you knew all sorts of people that were in it. So um, it was a great place to grow up because it really opened my eyes to this world at large of what the music business was. It wasn't, I didn't want to do this to be in the star business. I wanted to do this to be in the music business. And there were a lot of people that you saw in Nashville, even in the mid-70s, you know, that just made a living as musicians, as songwriters, or as front-of-house guys, or guitar tech or yeah. bass players or any of those things. And that was that was really educational for me because, again, it, it sort of demystified uh, this sort of rock star persona thing. You know, it was, you, know, you could go to the high school basketball game and Vince Gill would be there watching his daughter as <laughs> cheerleader, you know, right. and then he would go the next day and write songs and sing so beautifully he'd make you cry and play a killer guitar solo on the record and it was like, holy shit, like, you can do that? That's like, oh, okay, that's a cool job. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it was, um, it was a big influence. And, you know, in Nashville was always such a focus. It's the best studios and the best studio players. So I think the level of, of talent was always really inspiring, even at a really young age. Well, talk a bit about how you first got into writing songs of your own and what you can remember about your first songwriting attempt. I started writing pretty early. I, I was, um, I say pretty early. It was pretty late as far as in my progression as a human, but it was pretty early in my decision to get a guitar. I was 17 and I, I bought my first guitar and had a guy in history class just literally write out how to make three chords on a piece of notebook paper. I took it home and, um, and just started piddling with it. And I, I, uh, I think probably pretty instantly started trying to write 
songs. Um, and for me, it was much more, you know, looking back on it now, I think it was, uh, you know, my wife's a therapist and she gets kids all the time when they're having issues with things, you know, you teach kids to journal and give them a safe place where they can go and kind of write about things. And I didn't do that, but I think in some ways that's what this was for me. Writing was really a, a place where I felt like I could try and open up. I don't think I was, I don't not think, I was not very good and still struggle sometimes um, being open emotionally just on a real one-to-one level. And uh, so I started real early just writing, you know, I'm, I think everybody, so you're writing feelings about girls, wanting some girl to like you. I think that's every, anybody that tells you that's not the first song they wrote is full of shit. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, right. that's what they all are. Um, and then, you know, luckily, thank God, I don't think anybody heard them. Um, but then you just sort of start getting less bad at it or you quit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I like that distinction. It was like you just become less bad at it. I like that as a <laughs> yeah. Eventually, you can get good at it, but you need to not fool yourself. There's a point where you're just getting less bad. You're not getting good. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first step, <laughs> less bad. <laughs> yeah, that that's yeah, when I love to hear that back from a publisher. Like, yeah, well, you know, hey, give it another shot of this one. Just see if you can make it less bad. <laughs> yeah, this one is less bad, or you know, that really positive spin where they're like, you know, uh, this song is it's a lot less bad. Than the other one you turned in. This one is a lot. I can really see the progress. Yeah. Well, by the mid '90s, you had a band called Spoonful, and you guys released an EP. I'd love to know a bit about that group and what kind of stuff you were kind of writing in that period for that project. Yeah, that was. Um, I mean, I tell, I tell people sometimes that was the last sort of innocent band that I was ever in. You know, that was that. Uh, I had moved back home. I had gotten kicked out of school and was back in Nashville and, and started that band um, with some guys that had been in other bands here in town that were, they were a little further down the line. I mean, like, uh, had been in bands, a band called Valentine's Wood, a band called Venus Drive, that had kind of done things, bands that you had, like, seen play big clubs. And so that was, was really cool, and it was this big, loud, that was the first time I'd ever really, like, fronted a rock band, and I was, I wasn't playing anything at that point. It was this empty-handed frontman kind of role, and I was so incredibly uncomfortable doing that. Um, and as that went along, though, that was where I really, I think, started to develop as a writer. You know, because it was also it was a good band. It was the guys were all good players. And they really, you know, had cool arrangement ideas for things, and so. You know, a couple of the other guys would bring in pieces of music and I'd write lyrics, but then a lot of it just started being you know, where they would be songs that I had written. Um, and so I learned, you know, and, then, and like all innocent rock and roll band, you know, it blows up in your face pretty quick because somebody wants to do something else. And it's the time-honored tale of why rock bands never last. But, right. you know, through it, I was really realizing... Um, because there were so many cool influences in that band. Like at times, you know, I felt like as a writer, I would I would try to. Um, in that band, I was able to be Van Morrison at times, or I was able to be Otis Redding at times, or I was able to be uh, Roger Daltrey at times, or Eric Bird. You know, there was a sort of moment 
even within original songs where you're really trying to find out who you are and what you have. And um, so I learned a ton in that band. And then shortly after, it was really where that led immediately into, because as I started to be the songwriter and, you know, wanting to have, when I say control, I don't mean that in a heavy-handed way, but just, you know, the idea of like, let's, let everybody have their input on this song. Um, I was getting less and less interested in everything having to ha- I, I, did, I guess I said I don't want to be heavy-handed. I guess I wanted to be a little bit heavy-handed. <laughs> and really starting to, you know, think about what what songs were about and what the real core of the songs meant. Um and that was where that really started to develop for me. Well, and yeah, you, you did eventually emerge as a solo artist, and, and your band included Dan Baird, who's best known as the leader of the Georgia Satellites. You know, they had a huge hit with Keep Your Hands to Yourself. Uh, how did you and Dan first start working together? Yeah, I put together um, a real early group of what was going to be, you know, the first, just as Will Hogue. And he knew the bass player and drummer. They had worked together on a project. And so he came to see a show, and... We just swapped information, and I think at the time he was really kind of interested in maybe producing a record for me. And I just didn't feel like I was there yet. I still wanted to write some songs, and I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do recording-wise. Um, but again, you know, you're young and you're stupid, and so, you know, and again, and I grew up with such admiration. I mean, in my first band, that I ever played in, like, in high school. You know, we did, like, four Leonard Skinner songs, three Allman Brothers songs. I wrote two originals, and we did Keep Your Hands to Yourself. I mean, like, that was... Like, Dan Bear was, like, a, a hero to me even then. And so, you know, but again, just as an innocent kid, you're like, well, I'm just going to... I don't want him to produce a record, but maybe he'll be in my band, which is a total thing I wouldn't call somebody about now as a grown fucking man but I, I called him and asked if he wanted to come and play guitar and he uh, he did and you know that is another thing that just uh, you know, he was a guy that he just he's one of the most pure rock and rollers I've ever been around on stage he just it's, it's real and great every time he plays doesn't matter if you're in front of 10 people or 10,000 people and he also was years ahead of me as a songwriter. He's one of those guys that really dug into lyrics and story and things like that. So to have that at my disposal that early on, you know, I felt like when I played him songs, um, I knew if he was into them that I'd done, at least I'd done something right. It may need to still get ironed out or there may need to be a change, but like that was a big vote of confidence for me. And again, because Dan really comes from it, you know, there's so much in Nashville where they overthink songs, too. Where you go, you know, everything yeah. has to be defined and said in such a way that there can be no mystery. And Dan came much more from a uh, sort of a Neil Young school, you know, meets the Ramones school, where sometimes, you know, there can be some mystery in it and you not know exactly what it's about. Hmm. and it'd still be a great song. So yeah. that was a huge um, win for me, for sure, getting to have him be a part of that real early on. Well, your 
debut studio album carousel was released in 2001 featuring tracks like she don't care about me and let me be lonely neighbors upstairs yes they know these paper thin walls let everything show they say keep it down but i can't with you hanging around now you tell me you don't want to fight you're just here to see if i'm doing Those songs to me sound more like Elvis Costello reimagined as a Southern rocker than they do like country music. And, you know, you, you've since had success on the country charts, obviously, but did you think of yourself in any way as a, a, a country artist early on? I didn't. Um, and I still don't. I mean, even with that success, when that came, you know, I always just felt like I was a I felt like I'd gotten invited to the wrong party. I always felt like somebody was going to come up at some point and go, sir, you're not supposed to be. <laughs> um, no, I always felt, and from the real, I mean, I've always loved country music. I don't want to sound like, I mean, I still love country music. Uh, it's some of my favorite storytelling and some of my favorite singing and, and just instrumentation and guitar playing. So I don't ever want to sound like that's not something I love because I do. Um, but I never saw myself as a, country artist and I, and I sort of have paid the price for that commercially I mean I think early on even as the carousel record was getting made and we were working on that here in town you know you would take that record to you know, label executives here and they would say well it's just it's too it's just too rocked okay and then you take it to a you know the people in LA and they would say well it's just too country yeah and you know I think there's an argument to be made that you can have a very different career if you look at that information and sort of whittle down how you write songs and maybe you did intentionally make things more country or less country and then you can plant both feet solidly in one of those camps. But I took that as a huge compliment <laughs> right. and uh, and just kept doing exactly the same thing. And uh, here we are. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, though you'd released Carousel independently, the success of that album landed you a deal with Atlantic Records, who re-released it and then put out your follow-up record, Blackbird on a Lonely Wire, which derived its title from a line in the song, Secondhand Heart. had a a long career but this was your sort of major label moment what were some of the pros and cons as a creative person that came along with a, a major label record deal well the pros are just um you get to play with house money for a little bit which right. is nice i mean you know i making carousel i signed a, a publishing deal and i just took my advance and i made that record with my own money so basically I just bet on myself you know when all of a sudden you know Atlantic Records comes in and they write you a check and get your money back and they give you a little bit on top of it 
and then you get see a budget for the next record where somebody's going to really help you go to a studio in Los Angeles with a quote-unquote real producer. Not that the first producer wasn't, or not that Shanks wasn't a real producer. But, you know, it's just a bigger name. Everything gets a lot bigger yeah. um, and more serious, which is really interesting. And then, you know, there's a part, again, as, um, as business-savvy and as art-savvy as I want to consider myself in that situation, man. It's just, like, to look at a contract... You know, I just remember being a kid and sitting in front of records and looking at that Atlantic logo on old Ray Charles records or Aretha Franklin records or Stones right. records or Zeppelin records. And um, that's a hell of a marketing tool for those guys to land bands. <laughs> you, know, you start going, hey, this can be on your record. And it doesn't, you know, I mean, 47-year-old me probably understands that that just doesn't mean a whole lot, but... 25-year-old me, you know, you start imagining yourself as even a, you know, a, a droplet of that lineage of just incredible music. And then, you know, you sit in the office with Ahmed Erdogan, yeah. and he starts telling you about your record and the songs that he likes and what he thinks you should do. With I mean, shit, man. That, those are just experiences that... Uh, I have a hard time regretting. And, you know, you get to really focus on songs again. Um, you know, when... That was one of the really big times for me, was really going through, you know, working with a producer that's really looking at songs and saying what he likes and what he doesn't like. And learning to butt heads with people in a productive way. You know, John Shanks that produced that record is, is really great and he's really opinionated and he's really musical and he's really smart. Um, and so it was good for me because I can be really bullheaded and just like, well, this is the way I want it hmm. and so we're going to do it this way. And we butted heads, I think, in really productive ways, at least for me as an artist um, and as a writer, you know, really learning about melody and, and hooks and the importance of those things and when to push. So there's a, a lot to to learn there. I think those are sort of the pros. I mean, the cons are, I mean, they're really pretty minimal. Um, you know, you, can, you get lost in the shuffle real quick in that major label world. You get a lot of people, um, you know, the bigger the staff, the more opinions. And the more opinions that you can... Songs written by committee are generally not very good songs. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when you have to get... It's one thing for, you know, me and the producer, and then maybe the A&R guy to sort of all have an opinion of, maybe this needs to be more. But when you start, you know, well, the marketing department wants to know if you can change the third verse, and then the radio department wants to know if you can do this, and then all of a sudden you've got this thing that's moderately palatable <laughs> to a thousand people, but nobody loves it either. You've just watered and homogenized this thing to be um, milk toast. And right. instead, you know, you'd be better having something that three of the people would stand, you know, would die on the hill for, and the others go, I don't get it. But hmm. that's just the downside, I guess, if there's anything. Yeah. Well, following your Atlantic period, you released the indie album, The Man Who Killed Love, before signing with Ryko Disc and putting out the 2007 album Draw the Curtains. And there's a great track on that record called The Highway's Home. With a suitcase full of empty dreams, a guitar 
with broken strings A busted heart that longs to sing the blues A man that always leads me wrong A head full of Hank Williams songs I'm sorry honey but this highway's home And that is a fitting song title for a guy who was keeping up a relentless tour schedule during that time. I mean, you were playing up to 250 shows per year. I'm not great with math, but I know there are only 365 days in a year. <laughs> so we're, we're beginning to fill the year up. Uh, that, that's a lot of shows, man. Uh, in, in what ways did regularly playing in front of those live audiences shape your instincts as a writer? Well, honestly, it made me, I think it has a tendency to make you lazy as a writer. And it took me a long time to figure that out because when you're writing, like, and, and th- those two records in particular, when you bring those up, I mean, those were really hard records to make because of the calendar, like you were just saying. Um, you know, we would come home and we couldn't even book a studio for a, a week. We would book a studio for a day and we'd come in and try to record and then we'd go back out on the road and we'd find a different studio two weeks later and do it. And so it was a the miserable way to try to make a record really and truly. And when you're writing like that on the road all the time, when I say it makes you lazy, um, it's easy to get lazy just because you're just trying to finish anything. And, um, you know, you're writing in the back of a bus or real quick in a hotel room, kind of an hour at a time. And then you put stuff away and you come back and you revisit it. But things, a real piece together, and, and then sometimes because you're so used to that live environment, you know, there are things that you do live in front of an audience, and they work great because it's this communal moment live in front of an audience, but, you know, and that's what it took a long time to learn was what works in front of an audience doesn't always work um, in the studio or under headphones. You know, I guess it's the difference between live theater and, you know, a movie. Hmm. And um, so I think you started to, you know, it's easy to start to rely on certain things. You go to make this record or to write this song, and you go, well, the end of it will just do, it'll just get really loud. Like, we'll just, we'll bash it out at the end. Like, and that's cool live, but that may not be the best thing for the song uh, as a writer. And it it took me a little bit of time after some of those middle records to really, get back to that point of, of focusing on the songs. Then you can let them breathe and live live, but you've got to really focus on that hmm. as a writer. Now, you know, and as a capturing the moment, being that well-rehearsed as a band, you know, the studio can get greasy and fun on a performance level. Yeah. But, you know, that's different than songwriting, and I think that it took me a while to discern between the two things. Well, I want to ask you about your 2009 album, The Wreckage, uh, which includes one of your best-known songs, Even If It Breaks Your Heart. recording process was interrupted for months following uh, an accident that you were involved in. Talk about what happened and and what impact that experience had uh, on your process as a a writer and artist. Yeah, well, and that one is the one that really brings it back to 
the opposite of what we were just talking about. So the, in the process of starting that record, it was very similar to The Man Who Killed Love and, and, um, and Draw the Curtain that we had just discussed, where you know we were just on the road all the time, and I was starting to write songs and feeling pretty good about it. We went in and we recorded about four or five songs, and on the way home from the studio uh, one night, I had a little motor scooter that I was riding, um, and I got hit head-on by a 15-passenger van. Jeez, and that, yeah, it um, it almost killed me. I mean, it uh, you know, I had double compound fractures and femur and my kneecap. It crushed both lungs and broke six or seven ribs and my sternum and my collarbone. I had hmm. multiple fractures in both uh, shoulder blades. Um, had was blind in both eyes for a little bit. Had a few hundred stitches in my face. Knocked a bunch of teeth out, and it was. It was bad. Um, so obviously we took a break from the studio. Um, and I recovered, you know, it was the better part of a year uh, in and out of the you know, kind of graduating up from the the ICU um, and getting myself working again. And then um, when I finally got out of the hospital and I was in a wheelchair, couldn't really do much even with my shoulders and arms at that point to really play so it was the first time in you know, decades that I hadn't really thought about music um, and in that time once I was finally home and in a wheelchair and I could hold a I bought a mandolin because I, I could at least sort of start to play chords and things like that when I got a little better at my motor skills and yeah. um and then from there, uh, I went back to, when I was finally able to graduate to a walker, I started to write again. And that is the record that transitioned, for me as a writer, back to the real focus, because that was the only time since Carousel that you know I had time to just sit and focus on songs. Mm -hmm. And I think the songs really got better. Um, I mean, and you know, if if sales and people's responses to song are any indication, then it, the indication is that I, that it did matter and I did get better because that is where people all of a sudden I think started to look at. I'd never been called a songwriter until that record. I'd always been called a, a, a singer, a rock and roll singer, maybe a singer songwriter, but never really. I don't think the songwriting part was anything everybody anybody was particularly interested in with what I did and then mm -hmm. that record um, I think changed that for me and a lot of it just had to do with that focus but it was nice because then I was able to really realize that going forward that's there has to be time the process as a writer is just incredibly important and if I don't if I don't make time for it, it it's not going to be good enough yeah well, you talk about people beginning to sort of take notice of what you're doing as a writer. Uh, there's no better time than to talk about the Eli Young Band's cover of Even If It Breaks Your Heart. I mean, their version of the song went to number one on the country chart, earned you a nomination for Song of the Year at both the ACM and CMA Awards, as well as a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song. 
Um, that's a situation where a mainstream country act happened to cover one of your songs you'd already recorded. I'm sure there are a million changes that come along with an unexpected success like this. Um, I'm thinking in terms of your creative process. Did it ever become, you know, any kind of hindrance to think about, you know, the pressure that comes along with success? Um, or were all the changes good ones, in particular in terms of how you approach the craft of songwriting? It, it definitely was not a hindrance, and it's a, a little bigger than just a binary sort of A, B kind of thing. But there is a moment, you know, when it does happen, and Lord, I hope it happens again at some point, because, you know, it, it's a life-changing event. I mean, like, you know, there's the old joke about mailbox money, and it's a real thing. Like, <laughs> somebody has a hit with your song, you just start getting checks in the mail. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's incredible, man. I mean, you know, it's, I'm, I'm calling you from a house that has been paid for because of it. I mean, it's like, it's just this thing that you go, man, if I could do that one more time, like I, I can be, like I'm done. All of right. I don't have any worries in the world. And so, after that, what happened is that was where I got approached by BMG, you know, a big songwriting publishing house here in Nashville, and they they said, "Look, we because you're a songwriter now, so we'd like to pay you a yearly salary to write songs. We want you to just do what you do." Um, and we want you to also write, you know, country hits for these other people. And so, you know, again, at that point, you're looking and going, wait, so I get to keep this thing that I already built. You're not going to touch it. But then you're going to pay me to sit and write songs? Like, yeah, I'll try that. That <laughs> sounds like a, a hell of a plan. Right. And uh, so, you know, then you, I spent three and a half years, almost four years, doing a little bit more of a traditional Nashville writer thing um, to very little avail. I mean, nobody has recorded any of those songs. Um, you know, the only songs that have ever been recorded are things that I wrote and recorded and put on my own record. Um, I don't know exactly what that says. But, and I, I, but I don't mean that negatively necessarily. I learned so much, you know, the... There's this real craftsman-like work ethic for a lot of these guys and girls in Nashville that write commercial country music. They uh, they show up every morning at you know at 10 a.m. and oftentimes there's no idea and they just start to kick things around in the room and then you know, they've got this strange way of working where they go you know they're paying attention to what hot in the market at that point and what works and all of these things and um, there's a part that's a real turnoff for me as an artist with it um, and I don't really love those writing situations um, but what I was able to really glean from it was the you know, but I did, I did also meet with like you know I got to become friends with and write with Don Schlitz a lot who is no, the dude wrote The Gambler by himself. Like right. He earns an MVP award just for that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the, like getting insight for guys like that that really understand the craft, because that's a whole different genre. That's not just trying to write truck songs and be popular. Like those are dudes that, you know, wanted to be some hybrid mix of Bob Dylan and Hank Williams or whatever <laughs> it was and just wrote these great songs. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I learned a ton. So it, it informed the way that I 
right. I remember I, I've told the story often that you know, Don described it as trying to really, um, you know, take a look at what is it you're writing about and sort of just change the perspective. Maybe if you look at it physically, like it's a room that you're describing, and everybody's writing from the couch and what the room looks like. What if you stand in the corner by the coat rack? What does the room look like? Hmm. You know, and it was just. I mean, shit like that that sounds like it doesn't matter, and it matters a ton. Yeah. You know? and, and you just start to take about thinking about characters differently and realizing how you can stretch a story out. Um, so long-winded answer. It didn't change the way... It didn't change what I wanted to do. I, I realized pretty quickly I didn't want to be in Nashville. I'd love to have more commercial success here, but I can't be the guy that sits and just writes songs that I don't believe in. Um, hmm. But... I can, as a writer, you know, the idea that you're just going to sit down in this sort of rock and roll mentality of like, when I'm inspired, I'll write a song. is garbage. Like, you <laughs> you got to wake up and you got to really dig in. So I, I learned a ton from that, and then having that success opened that door for me to really work on becoming literally a better writer. I think. Well, your seventh studio album, appropriately titled Number Seven, uh, was released in 2011. That was your your third and, and final album for Ryko Disc. And there's some great songs on that album, like the soulful ballad, When I Get My Wings. Um, but there's also a bit of a more socially conscious thread that begins to appear in your writing on that album. And I'm thinking specifically uh, of the immigration-themed song, The Illegal Line. Then I send the money back down to my sweet wife So she can tell my children about a better life Papa's trying hard just to make it fine Fifty miles north of that illegal line Hey! That socially conscious theme really continued to flourish with your modern American protest music EP the following year with songs like Jesus came to Tennessee and ballad of Trayvon Martin as you're sort of focusing on, on commercial uh, the commercial country market at the same time, there's also this real kind of uh, new stream of, of songwriting for you um, that's more socially oriented. Talk about, your development as a, a songwriter in terms of wanting to address uh, more social and political issues in a direct way through your music. Yeah, so it, it had started a little earlier than that. So at post Blackbird and before uh, the Man Who Killed Love, there's this not to question your research, but there's this overlooked. Uh, I made an EP called the America EP. We went into a little studio in Oxford, Mississippi, and it was all uh, political things. It was 2004. And um, that was the first foray into that, and I was really nervous about it because I, I didn't know if I should be doing that. And that was a big learning thing with Atlantic. You know, They said, hey, look, we love this, and we think these songs are cool, and we love that you're an artist that wants to do this, but we don't have... We're not going to we're not going to put out records like this. Hmm. But if you want to do it, we understand we support you and we should, we should part ways. And I said, I do. And we shook hands and hugged and everybody was cool. And I went and made that record uh, and put out that record. Um, and after it's released, uh, that was the first time 
I'll get back to the whole point of what your question was. I'm sorry. But Steve Earle showed up at a show. He had heard a song on the radio, and he showed up to a show at Exit In and saw me play. And, um, you know, Steve was one of those guys that I had grown up listening to that, that in some ways sort of embodied all of the things that he was a little too rock and a little too country. Like it was a, I felt a little bit of a, you know, a life to follow there. And, yeah. um, I was just blown away like that he even took the time to, to come to a show and, and all that. And I thought, man, that's, it was a good reminder. It's like, hey, I should just do the shit that I need to do and say the things I need to say as an artist and sort of let the chips fall where they may. And then with the number seven record, um, I just felt a little bit more, that was the first time it had ever gotten intermingled into a just quote-unquote normal record, where the America EP was this standalone piece of, you know, from the artwork, from the title, there was no question if you were going to buy this record, it was going to have these types of songs on it. Yeah. So I felt like I'd given people a chance. If you don't like this, don't buy it. <laughs> right. But, you know, with number seven, it was the first one where it was like, this is just intermingled with the songs about girls and love and the way that you feel about things and here's a song about illegal immigration um, or just immigration excuse me um, and, and you know Steve was one of those guys I mean you know growing up listening to him and realizing that you know you could have these opinions about things and that you know then you trace that back to uh, Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie and then you know you, you think about great rock and roll bands and guys like The Clash you know Joe Strummer that are doing things like that. Um, right. And that's just something that I was always interested in. I mean, you know, the, the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young guys were always outspoken. Um, I mean, the Beatles. I mean, you know, everybody. I, I just have always wanted to be an artist that had... I didn't want to be neutral on this. I, did, I can't be, so... Um, yeah, they don't get cut by country artists very often, but I still write them. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in 2013, you hit the Billboard charts as an artist for the first time uh, when the ballad Strong from your Never Give In album fell just shy of the country Strong. top 40. Strong. He'll pick you up and won't let you down. Rock solid inside out. Somebody you can trust. Steady as the sun. Ain't nothing gonna knock him off the road he's rolling on. He's strong. But that one was also used in a Chevy truck commercial, which brought the song extra attention. I mean, everybody loves when that happens, right? Um, but what can you tell us about that song? That was started with my cousin, Zach Crowell, who is a great uh, producer and writer here in town with a lot of you know, these modern pop country artist and he writes often with a guy named Ashley Gorley who is another one of those commercial songwriters that I think he's got you know like 60 number one country hits or something now it's just asinine it's <laughs> incredibly successful he and Zach both and they had um, a portion of the song that they wanted uh, more of a rootsy real feel to it and that's just not what those two guys I think what they wanted is to sound less like a hit song, is what I'm guessing they didn't have the heart to ask me. So I came in and we uh, 
we changed the arrangement a little bit and wrote a bridge and changed a few things. And the next thing, uh, we had made an iPhone recording of it, just kind of like you always do. And then I got a call the next week. I was going on vacation with my family, and the people from Chevrolet had heard the song, and they said they wanted the guy that sang the demo to sing it. And, um, you know, we explained to him there wasn't a demo. And then they explained to us that it was just the actual iPhone recording they'd heard. It was me. And, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole crazy story about them having to send a plane for me to miss only a day of my vacation and giving me a truck. I mean, it was just one of these, I, I couldn't do it because I was the only vacation I've had with my family ever and I wasn't going to miss it. And then they just kept offering me more stuff. You know, I would say, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't be at a session to sing this vocal. And they'd go, okay. And then they'd call back and they'd go, well, what if we gave you this? And I just kept saying no because I, I couldn't. And it ended up in the end, like, it was like Spinal Tap. It was like, okay, what if we send a plane for you and we give you a truck when you get home and there's this amount of money and you'll only be gone for eight hours? <laughs> I just looked at my wife and she was like, yes. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And you did, you know, and then we ended up putting it on that record. The Never Give In record was pretty much done. And then when that came through, we, we were sort of able to just uh, put it on the end of the record. Um, and, then, you know, it was an interesting thing. I mean, it didn't really fit with the album. The album was kind of complete without it. But then it just... Um, it was an interesting thing to have kind of on the tail end of that record for sure. Well, your 2015 album, Small Town Dreams, hit number 15 on Billboard's country album chart. And one of the real standout songs on that record um, was Little Bitty Dreams, which is kind of about uh, reprioritizing family life over the, the big dreams of, of stardom. Talk a bit about how that particular song came together. Well, growing up in, in Franklin... And moving out there, you know, when I was a kid, one of the things I really loved about it, and there were plenty of things I didn't love about it, but one of the things that was really cool is, you know, there were people that I met in kindergarten that I graduated high school with. And, you know, you just, as a community, you kind of knew each other, and you know, you'd see people fall in love and break up and get, you know, just do all the things that happens in a small town. Um, but then where I left and would run off and chase all of these ridiculous rock and roll dreams and and think of the world as this huge place that I'm going to go and sample as much of as I can. You know, I would come back home and talk to folks who I really love and still do and admire. You know, they married their high school sweetheart and, you know, just work a really normal job and do all of these really normal things. And, um, I think there's a tendency sometimes for folks in that situation to look at it like it's negative. And then, uh, of course, for people to look from the outside and go, God, you've just never done anything. And um, I think I was able to see, because that was my original idea. I mean, I wanted to go to college and get a degree in history and come back to Franklin and coach high school basketball and teach history and have a family. I mean, that, that's just what I, that was, that was the original dream. Really. Yeah. And so for me, some of it was, I guess in some ways, I don't want to say mourning it because I don't regret it, but, you know, realizing that that 
was never going to be my path. And also, you know, trying to acknowledge my friends uh, that have stayed around and done those things. I, I think it's really beautiful. It's not something that I look down my nose at and go, oh, how can you still do this? I think there's something that's really poetic about it. And wanted to try to convey that in that song. I understand that while you were touring in support of Small Town Dreams, you kind of hit a wall, you know, for lack of a better term, and stopped touring with a band uh, to go out to perform solo instead. Um, talk about that transition time and why it was important for you to kind of switch things up that way. I had just gotten really burned out. I mean, with Small Town Dreams, again, kind of parlaying off of the the idea from the wreckage on, you know, I'd really gotten focused on songwriting again and I'd had some success and all of a sudden I was a songwriter and um, you know that was an attempt there was uh, some doors in that sort of larger country world had really opened you know people at radio that had all been rock and roll people would say man I wish I love your records and then you know we make this record that kind of fits this middle of American Heartland kind of rock record. I really wanted that record to be something that teenage me driving around in the car would have just gravitated to, like with these big choruses and loud guitars, um, just right down the middle kind of hooks and things like that. And, and I was real proud of that record. And we went out and we played really hard, played bigger shows and bigger audiences than we probably ever played for before. Um, and just wasn't very happy with it. And the band at that point had changed a couple of times and then the chemistry was wrong. And, and you know, that's, um, having a band on the road is a lot like casting a movie. I say that like I've ever cast a damn movie, but that's how I like <laughs> to envision it. Um, you know, you can have great people, you can cast all great actors, but sometimes just the ensemble cast is wrong. And and that's what happened there. I had, you know, guys that were all really good players, but there was no chemistry on the road. And that was heartbreaking because that had never really been the case for me. You know, live performances where I could always go back and go, okay, I can reset here because I know that we're going to blow people's minds um, whenever we play. And there was a period there where it was, I felt like we were blowing at people's minds, but not really blowing their minds. <laughs> and, um, so I just, um, you know, at that point, my kids were also uh, eight and five, nine and six. Um, I was missing a lot, and I, I really got to the point where I was like, why am I even doing this? I don't, why would I continue to come out here? Maybe I hate songs. Maybe I hate me. Maybe I hate everything about this. Um, and so I, I took the free pickup truck from Chevrolet and, and packed a bunch of stuff in it and said, I'm going to. I'm going to go out and just play solo by myself. I'm going to play these kinds of rooms where I can try to tell stories and really focus on songs. And I, I sort of just rekindled that spirit over the course of a year or so, really watching audiences connect with the simplest form of what I had spent my time doing. Um, over the years. And so it really led me back again to that sort of reminder of how important songs are and why I do enjoy doing it. And then at the same time, my boys at that point had started a rock band uh, in my garage called The Lonely Man. 
It was just this terrible. No, they can't play anything. They were just terrible. They had guitars and an amp and a drum set and a microphone. Right. They had another neighborhood kid, and they would go out there and just make this racket in the garage, writing songs. I mean, they had songs like they had a song called Hot Sauce Man and a song called Hippie in the Road. I mean, all these songs that just. And I remember it like like it was yesterday. I'm, I'm talking. You looking out the window from like where it was when they did this, but I remember going like, God, that's, I'm not going to record Hippie in the Road, but like that is the, there's supposed to be a joy in this, and it's something that I had just lost hmm. completely. Um, and so kind of between that solo stuff and then watching them, I was really able to sit and um, fall in love with the process again. Your 2007 album Anchors is more intimate in some ways, and there's some killer songs on there like cold night in santa fe and that one in particular there's a lyric that says it ain't the knowing it's over it's the watching it slip away which is one of those great lines that just makes me smile when i hear it um i'd love to know um how you kind of keep track as a songwriter of little lines or, or titles or or ideas that might come to you do you keep a journal or leave little voice memos for yourself on your phone. But where do you, it's kind of a two part question. Where, where do you kind of tend to find those sparks uh, for song ideas and how do you kind of go about keeping track of those things? It's a little bit, um, if they were still hunting the Unabomber, there's a chance that they could think that it was me um, <laughs> with all of my ridiculous. It is, uh, it's sheer chaos. So yeah, I have voice memos in my phone. I have uh, you know notes to myself in my phone. I have scraps of paper. Um, I have a safe in my closet where I just, I mean, it's years of stuff. It's hotel room pads. Um, I used to, for years, you know, I, I remember reading about uh, Ronnie Van Zant and all those great Skinner songs, and you know, he never wrote anything down was the big thing. And I remember thinking that how cool that was hmm. until I forgot about 50 songs that I think were really good. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, it may have worked for Ronnie, but it's not going to work for me. Right. And, um, yeah. And it's, you know, that's something that, um, I still can't write with a laptop. I still write with pen and paper. I, I can use my, my phone is a great tool for capturing the, like you said, the, the, the you know, knowing it's over, watching it slipping away. Like, okay, put that in the notes section and then see if you can build on it later. But I ultimately, still at the end of the day, everything's written with pencil and, and paper just because hmm. I like to. I, I think I'm still just more tactile about it. And Don Schlitz had told me one time when we first wrote and I took a notebook out, he did too. And he said, Well, I'll tell you this that nobody wants to see a laptop in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That great line. Yeah. Well, let's talk about collaboration for a moment. Um, when that Small Town Dreams album came out, I mean, that was kind of an impressive list of, of Nashville co-writers like Brett Beavers and Tommy Lee James, Hillary Lindsay, Gordy Sampson, Chris Stapleton, um, a lot of folks that you had had written with. And, and then in, in recent years, you've collaborated with a number of artists, um, people like Hayes Carl, who recorded uh, Good While It Lasted, or Brendan Benson, who recorded Baby's Eyes, or the band Trigger Hippie, um, who you collaborated with on a couple songs on their album. Um, 
you know, you've collaborated with kind of a wide range from behind the scenes, Nashville hit makers to fellow artists. I'm curious for you um, at this stage in your career, having been, you know, the uh, indie rock guy, having been the, um, you know, mainstream Nashville publishing deal guy, um, what does collaboration, what does co-writing um, do for you? How does that sort of... Um, work in terms of your uh, creative output at this stage in your career, you know, as compared to writing solo? Well, they're just, they're both so different. Um, when, when co-writing is really good, there's something really special about it. Um, and I think that that's not, I'm not saying that even just for me. I think that, you know, when you go to, I mean, Lieber and Stoller, Gamble and Huff, Lennon McCartney, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's lots of co-writing situations where you realize why it works. You know, somebody brings in this thing and then they add a little fire and a little juice, and it, you know, maybe you've got this great melody, but the lyric needs a little help, or vice versa. And so, when it can work, it's really special, um, and it's just something you don't get from solo writing. And that being said, too, you know, there are solo writing things. I had to learn the balance of, there are certain solo things, I think I've gotten better at going like, okay, no, this is a complete thought. I don't want, you know, I don't want to take Cold Night in Santa Fe to some Nashville songwriter that then says, well, you can't say that because it's got to have more talk about trucks in it or whatever. Hmm. Like, I don't want to screw up what I think is a, is the song that I really wanted it to be. I don't need to screw that up. But there are yeah. other things that, you know, you don't want to be afraid to have input on and you know and, and when it works really well like I say it's just a cool thing to sit in a room with another person and, and come out with this thing that didn't exist before um, and it's a challenge sometimes but it's fun I mean you know that uh, there's a song on the new record called Even the River Runs Out of This Town that I wrote with Jonathan Singleton and Rob Snyder both of who are friends but we'd never written together before and you know that was one that you know sometimes the co-writes are they're heavier one person or the other too. And those aren't ever very fun. But with that one, like Rob had a title and that was it. Jonathan had a piece of music and then I started sort of throwing the lyrics out as we were going along and it was one of those that was really collaborative and you know, those are the days that make it worthwhile. There's other ones and, and my wife would probably be the better person to answer this question because you know, she's the one that every time I come home from a bad one I go, I don't ever... I can't ever co-write again. Like, I can't. I can't do it. I right. can't do it ever again. You know, this guy wanted, there's, you know, some, a great writer that shall remain nameless. You know, I tried to write with him and was excited about it. He wanted to write a song about his wife's butt. And it was truly <laughs> one of those, like, we're really going to sit here, like, the two of us? And then, you know, I started questioning myself. It's like, as an artist, did you think that the song about your wife's butt is what you wanted to right with me I, I questioned my whole <laughs> career at that point and we never finished a song about his wife's butt so that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's what i hear all about if you want to write a song about your wife's butt will's, will's your guy <laughs> yeah i'm the wife's i'm the wife's ass song yeah, perfect well uh your most recent record which came out on june 26 is called tiny little movies and it features more great will hogue songs like the lead single the curse
Tell us a bit about writing and recording that album. Well, so I'd gotten out of the publishing situation and was really just focusing on writing for me again. And I was in a really sweet spot where, you know, my kids are now older. You know, they, they're in school. And so my wife goes to school as an educator. And I was really able to dig back into the craft of writing, you know, and I would... I mean, you know, all the un-rock and roll things that I would have not wanted to hear from somebody when I was in my 20s. But, like, you know, I get them fed breakfast and out the door by 7.30, and then I could exercise and get my head straight, meditate, and then, you know, I had hours before they'd come home at 3.30 or 4 to sit and really write the songs. And yeah, I'm in an interesting place in our lives, too, where watching my kids grow just got different perspectives on the world as a writer um relationship wise you know trying to be vulnerable enough with the things that i've screwed up uh, things that i don't do well naturally i think really trying to let those things be in the songs a little bit and be more vulnerable as a writer trying to also just tell stories that aren't exclusively my experience trying to really create characters and, and pictures um, started paying a lot more attention to writers not songwriters even but I have an author that's a good friend of mine and I watched his whole process over the last few years of you know, writing and cultivating novels and just how much time and effort is spent writing pages or thinking about you know, guys that write film and, and TV and, and how you go to develop characters and things like that. So it was really interesting to sit down with kind of those things, not necessarily in the front of my mind. I still just want to make a great rock and roll record in the front of my mind, but knowing that there's all of these other things to to draw from and, and really wanting the, the words on the page to matter not if I sing them great, but even if you just read them, is this interesting? And trying to let that be a little bit of a guiding star, too. Well, the new album is really cool. I've listened to it uh, several times. There is some great songs in there. I love That's How You Lose Her. Um, some really cool, cool highlights there. Um, and, Will, we want to Thank you for yet another great record. Um, lots of great songs in your catalog, and uh, we appreciate you spending some time with us today to talk about not just the new record, but your whole career trajectory. Um, I think it's uh, great insights for music fans and, and songwriters, um, really interesting thoughts on the process, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Man, I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you all for, uh, for letting me do it. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. 
thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Way back on the radio dial, fire got lit inside a bright-eyed child. Every note just wrapped around his soul, from steel guitar to Memphis all the way.